Boss Brief, a strategic guide on how to not be an asshole at work. We'll tell you about bad bosses, how they can be handled, how to tell if you happen to be one. An executive and an executive coach, both artists working in advertising and marketing for more than two decades, are here to advise you on the ins and outs of office environments. The Bad Boss Brief is your ultimate guide to navigating any employment landscape. Here are your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. Hey, I'm Stephanie Payrollo. And I'm Eugene S. Robinson. Welcome to the Bad Boss Brief. This is episode 11, and we're calling it The Wrong Boss. What should a good leader do when they are wrong? Right. Because everybody will be wrong every now and then. How you deal with it, I think, separates the okay from the great, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's... We're all going to make mistakes, but it takes a certain amount of confidence to apologize. And I also think it's really useful because what you're doing is you're telling your team that everybody makes mistakes. Right. right? You're setting up a precedent of like, this is how we work here. And I'm, you know, as we've talked about before, I'm a little dubious about workplaces being a place of psychological safety. But I do think within a team, if you are the leader of a team and you freely admit your mistakes, that Mm. that can create a kind of psychological safety. There's a recognition that, you know, if you make a mistake, there's not going to be a swift guillotine fall that, you know, we're all human and we can move on from that. Also, you know, I like, they, you know, I've had people, I've talked about this before and I've had people you scoff, right? Okay, so the guy who wrote Only the Paranoid Survive, that guy being Andy Grove, former CEO and co-founder of Intel, um, he had, it was a small little thing, but he set up sort of a quasi-egalitarian system at Intel where uh, there were no C-suites, there were no corner office folks. Everybody had a cubicle. You could walk up to his cubicle and it was just like your cubicle. Well, except a little larger, but but he still sat in a cubicle. You could peer over the top at any given point and see Andy Grove working away. It was a small gesture, but it, in in my mind, it meant a lot. It, as does you know a well placed and timely apology. Well, and I think that one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this is that apologies are done often, but usually badly. Yeah, and so I have I actually have a formula for how to do a good apology. Mm. And I thought it would be useful to sort of take us through that. So Mm. I want to use it as an example. Do you have any examples of like something that happened to you or that somebody else should have done and apologized that we can use to sort of ground this in reality? Yeah, there's a guy and I'm... um uh, I, I love this guy. <laughs> As has often been the case, some of the worst and hardest cases have have cottoned on to me for whatever reason. This is a British guy. He just he he just loved me, but he was a holy terror to work for. Ended up being uh, the Secretary of Defense of the UK for a period of time. So he r- risen pretty uh, uh, high in the ranks, but he um, had a tremendous destructive temper and this had nothing to do i mean physically not imposing at all uh you know maybe five foot six five foot seven but just you know a force of nature and was people were quitting they were just quitting rather than than deal with his temper so he the uh, executive board at one point said you got to handle this and sent him to counseling 
right, for his 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 tremendous temper. Um, and so they said we they gave him some things to do, actionable items, action items. He could stand up, look out the window, count to ten, take a deep, all the things that you might imagine. <laughs> but what happened is, when he would get angry, he would do these things, and now people understood the new language. Oh my God, Bernard's angry, <laughs> and so they were still terrified. So by way of this was real actionable apology. He was like modifying his behavior to account for the fact that he had been a monster, but it was still, he was still a monster. I mean, just because he stood up from the desk and went and stared out the window while, while hyperventilating didn't make people who work for him feel any better. But suffice it, I, I loved the guy. He was great. He was always nice to me, you know. Well, and, you know, that actually brings up an interesting point because, you know, I don't do remedial executive coaching. Right. Right? That's not my jam. I have friends well, now, that- what is, now, now, explain, because I, this is the first time I heard it, remedial. So, uh, uh, and I don't even know if that's like, that's the term that I use. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that others use that term, but there are times like in, in the case of Bernard, mm-hmm. that was someone who was doing remedial coaching. Right. Right. That that's where you have a high performer or someone who's in senior leadership who has a pretty significant problem. Right. A bad Mm -hmm. temper, um, you know, sexist or racist comments, inappropriate behavior, um, but they're good at what they do. And so you Mm -hmm. want to teach them. And so there are executive coaches that work specifically in that area to try to fix this person so that they don't get fired or they can continue to stay in there. That's not that's not my favorite thing to do. Sometimes those things do come up in executive coaching, but the general understanding amongst coaches and what we are taught to do is that changing behavior and showing people that your behavior has changed takes a really, really long time, right? So let's say Bernard's in a meeting and he starts screaming and yelling and throws a stapler across the room, right? Right, right. And we don't even have to say that. (laughs) So so the time when he threw the the stapler across the room. So HR gets involved, senior leadership gets involved. He is known as the guy that threw the stapler across the room. And so what I, I, what people suggest is that if you are the stapler thrower guy, you have to continue to say, I am changing. And the way that you say that is, I am now going to counseling. I am now in executive coaching. Here are some things that I'm trying to do. Here's how I'm trying to rebuild back. Because what's going to happen is exactly what you described, is even if the behavior stops, the slightest voice raise, the first time that there's some, so everybody's going to brace for impact and they're not going to be able to work effectively. And I think there's a, there's a a misperception among leaders of like, okay, I did the bad thing. It's been two weeks. I've gone to a couple executive coaching sessions. I'm good. Everybody has forgotten it. And the reality is nobody has forgotten it, right? Nobody has forgotten. And so you have to figure out if you're that leader, you have to figure out what you're going to do to communicate the changes. But one of the things, which I'm not hearing you say that Bernard did, is how to do a decent apology. Okay? No, 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 so, that, that was not happening. <laughs> so let's say, let's say that there's a, there's a um, particular team member that mm. a person, we'll just say Bernard, mm. is really injured, right? So somebody that he actually threw a stapler at who is like, mm. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm out of here. This is completely unacceptable behavior. Let's call that person Joan, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the way that Bernard should do an apology is, is as follows. So uh, Joan, I want to apologize for throwing a stapler and yelling in a meeting. I was wrong and mm-hmm. I am sorry. Yep. I understand that this is a rupture in our working relationship or whatever language you want to use. 
And I would like to know what I can do to repair that rupture. Mm-hmm. And then he stops talking and listens to what Joan says. Mm-hmm. Um, this never happens, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like that. In that fa- nice fantasy world, it happens. But- this never happens. But I think the key is, I just want to point out, there's a couple things that are not in this apology. There is no excuse. There is no, but you did such and such, right? Um, there is no, it's just, I did this unskillful behavior. I recognize that it had an impact on you and I would like to mediate that impact. What can I do? You know, it was funny. Uh, um, sad to say that <laughs> I have actually been asked, not required, but asked to apologize to a coworker. <laughs> now, this was not one of my direct reports. Um, this is, uh, we were dotted line we were in a meeting and we were having a free flowing sharing of ideas. The guy had just been that day earlier had been talking about how when he was getting his master's, the program was really tough and they were really like would end the paint on criticism, leading me to believe somehow he could take it. And he later said something in a meeting that I found to be totally asinine. And rather than do the passive aggressive thing of just rolling my eyes or you know, exhaling. I said, that's got to be the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I was expressing an opinion, but you know what? This is California. And uh, uh, my manager did come to me later and said, I think Joe has got his feelings hurt. I think that if you, you know, I know you are you, but you should maybe apologize to him. And I said, I cannot give an honest apology because there's no way I will never believe that wasn't a stupid idea. I can apologize for the way I delivered the criticism, but I can't apologize for the criticism. And he goes, that's up to you. So um, my apology went by way of, hey, Joe, I'm sorry I called your idea asinine in the meeting. I shouldn't have done that, though I still believe the idea was asinine. (laughs) And I think it was cold comfort to Joe. I mean, I, I actually extended myself to do it, but I didn't undo what I had said, right? So it didn't it didn't really help. Well, and I think, I mean, certainly if you don't feel like you can make a genuine apology, you shouldn't. It's better to make no apology than to make a bad one because that just, you know, it, yeah, yeah. compounds it. But I could see if you had, you know, been interested in making an apology that you could still live with, you could have said something like, Joe, I shouldn't. I shouldn't have criticized you using that global statement in mm. a meeting. Yeah, right. Yep. Which, that's a nice, that's that's artful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do I get a build, build, build for this? That was actually pretty artful. I ne- and you know what? And hearing you say it, I know I never would have come up with that in a million years. I never would have. I, right. I, I, that's that's why I always have plenty of business as an executive coach. You just, <laughs> and you just you need somebody else. I mean, people do that right. to me too. You just you can't. You can't see it. And I think, you know, the challenge, too, is is there are circumstances. I mean, because one of the things, you know, I talk a lot about bad bosses, right? Mm-hmm. But as an executive coach, I work with good bosses. I mean, I'm, I'm working. I choose. I also choose the people that I want to work with. And they're very intentional. And so I do have a lot of sympathy for people who want to repair a rupture, who want to be skillful. And one of the challenges that they'll say to me is, this thing happened I said this thing, my direct report responded in this way. I really want to give him some context. 
I really want to tell him I said this thing because of this thing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the context really does completely change the circumstances of what happened. And what I suggest there is if you feel like you have a context that's genuine, mm-hmm. right, um, then I think what you can say is after you do that apology, right, mm-hmm. I was I was wrong, I am sorry, what can I do to make it up mm-hmm. to you? Then I think you can say something like, I'd like to, I don't want to make an excuse, but I would like to give you some context. Is that Okay. Right, right. And then if they say yes, then you say, here's the context. You know, I I talked to your supervisor about the fact that you've been really quiet in meetings because mm-hmm. I have family members that really suffer from depression. And I was concerned about you. That's right. not an excuse for the way that I phrased it. I shouldn't have blah, blah, blah. But I right. just wanted you to know that. Boom. And then you're done. And then you mm-hmm. stop talking. Mm-hmm. Right. And And I think that the idea is make an apology when there has been a rupture that you have been largely responsible for in a relationship that you want to repair, right? You can be repairing not because you care about the person. You can hate the person, but you repair the relationship because you don't want them going to human resources and complaining yeah. about you. You don't well, want to have a lawsuit. You just don't want to deal with the headache. Or also you have to continue working with the person. So it's better to be, it's very, like Sinatra said it best, keeping the party polite. It just, it works. So- and I think too, you know, and like we we started out talking about creating an atmosphere and and showing people how to be. Apologizing is a really good way of giving away power, right? And and I often think about this, like who needs to take on more power and who needs to give power away. And one of the things that I actually learned this from my kids, right? So I was a single mom and I was very strict as a single mom. And when I made a mistake, I made a big noise about making a mistake, which was really important to my kids. Right. If I'm going to be, as they call it, Attila the mom, then I need to be able to admit when I'm wrong. And we had a little joke. I don't know where we heard it, but it's like, I am wrong in my wrongness. <laughs> and and there was yeah, something yeah. really satisfying to the kids yeah. of like, you know how yeah. kids are when it's like teenagers yeah. and it's like, oh, you were right. Yeah, you were wrong. Yeah. You were wrong in yeah. your wrongness. Right, right, right. And I've thought about that when I would go into situations where I was in leadership and, you know, mm-hmm. I... I am told that I am a scary person. I can be daunting. When I would say, oh my God, I completely screwed that up. I got that completely wrong. There, there's this moment of like, what she, what, what did she, and, and everybody kind of calms down, right? There's like a, a sort of, a, the air comes into the room in a really positive way. Maybe, but what, what undergirds that, I think in your instance, is, is the idea that you are fundamentally well-meaning. I mean, I have had I've had a boss who you who you have had personal professional dealings with who said at one point (laughs) it was one point at which he was aggressively wrong. Say, hey, on the best day, you know, maybe I'm going to be 50 percent right, which means I'm going to get things wrong about half the time. So I just, you know, I, uh, I hope to learn from this and then move on, which was kind of a backhanded mea culpa. But at the same time, when hours later the monstrous behavior continued. It was just, it was, it was what I'd like to call, or or what Muhammad Ali would have liked to have called rope-a-dope. When you start to relax just to be attacked a few hours later, it was very definitely, that can be weaponized. But undergirding it was also the sensation that this person, this leader, CEO, was not fundamentally a good person, a good actor. They were a bad actor. So, and I think that's, that's a really important characteristic, right? And that's why I was saying, you know, at the top, like this is, if you are, want to be a good leader, if your intention is to be positive, because one of the things I, it was in the New York times this morning, I can't even remember where, but the idea that 
inconsistent leaders are much more psychologically damaging than bad leaders. Right. Right. Somebody who's bad to you. Same with parents. Same with parents. Same with romantic relationships. It's easier to have somebody just be a jerk to you all the time because you put up your defenses and you're ready when you walk into the room. But somebody who's sometimes nice and then sometimes horrible and you never know, it will physiologically cause you that much more stress. Right. You know, I had a I had a buddy who had who had boiled this down to a theory that he used to call, call two slaps and a kiss. <laughs> I mean, he he was and and you know, I'd like to say he's out of business, but he's not. He's running a multi million dollar concern in in Florida right now. So you know, well, and I think and I think this is you know, in the since our listeners like practical advice. I think the practical advice is to sort of recognize and deal with the bad apologies that come your way from leaders, right? So this is the flip side of it. Like, and that is, that is, you're talking about some bad apologies, right? Somebody who does kind of like, yeah, maybe I'm wrong in my, you know, intermittently between bouts of genius, not helpful, right? Right. Um, Another one, this is a very prevalent one. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. (laughs) I'm sorry I made you mad, right? Or, Or worse yet, I'm sorry you're upset, not even having right. any responsibility. I was, right, right. We were watching. Look what you made me do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were watching all the president's men again this yeah. this weekend, and there's that non denial denial, yeah. right? You know, and it's yeah. it's that yeah. same. It's the non apology apology. Like I'm sorry right. you're mad. I'm sorry you're upset. Right. 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 Better to just stop talking, right? But there's one yeah. that I think is important that I actually see. I see a lot, and I I must say it's usually from white guys. Um, it's called, it's true. I, I we, don't, we don't screw around on this show. <laughs> and if any other show, they might've tried to, well, it's usually about, yeah, right. I got you. Yeah. It's called DARVO. Yeah. And DARVO stands, stands for deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. So if I go to a boss, let's say, and say, you know, Hey, this sexist behavior that came from you, not appropriate. You need to not be doing that to the women that report to me. And he darvos me. The first thing he's going to do is deny that never happened. I never said that. That I, that I never said that. Then he's going to attack. You are only telling me that because you're a feminist with a chip on your shoulder and you hate everything. Then he's going to reverse victim, make himself the victim and me the offender. You don't know what it's like as hard as I work and for you to constantly be bitching at me about this, that, or the next thing. I mean, you're just... You're aggressive. Like you are just aggressive coming at me like this. Right? <laughs> he said he says aggressively. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right? Right, right? So deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. And some people, I mean, man, there are guys that will just lean on that reverse victim. They will just lean on it. Like, you know, I just I had a I had a mother who yelled at me and it left me deeply damaged. So you can't ever raise your voice to me, even if yeah. I have, you know, whatever. And what I think is challenging is that particularly for women who are on the receiving end of this, we are so socialized to cater to men's emotional needs, right? Mm -hmm. And and men are so good at saying, fix me, help me, make me feel better, that when there's that that DARVO reaction, a lot of women will second guess themselves. Maybe maybe I was too mean. Maybe Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have said that. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have called him. And, you know, it was funny because I had a... I had a Darvo response one time. I had been working for someone and under the terms of my employment agreement, the company owned everything that I made. Mm-hmm. And I had during my time there written a an article 
specifically about what I did, which was new business at the time. <laughs> and we had submitted it to get published. It didn't get published. Whatever. I forgot about it. I've left, right? I left because this was not a great place to work. A year later, I open up Inc. Magazine and there's my article. Only my name's not on it. Oh, that's- and it's like literally word for word. Like, yeah, you think right. I don't keep files of the stuff? Yeah. 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 So I wrote, wrote a text to this guy or an email and was like, hey, you know, you could have at least name checked me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice. Instead of coming back and saying, sorry, I, you know, it, whatever I meant to, or even pretend, like I put in name checking you, but they edited it out. Mm. He darvoed me and he just came after me. It mm. was like this sort of breathtaking series of mm. just like vicious attacks. Mm. And I was like, and especially for something that was so easy to prove, right? Like, mm. dude, I have the word file. Other people yeah, right. there read the same right. article. You right, know, you right, didn't right. even change the the paragraph order. Yeah. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so right. I think if you are, and the, the challenge is if you get Darvoed, it's, it's like the person who is Darvoing you is raising a signal flag saying, I have no skill. I have no mm-hmm. self-awareness and I really need to mm-hmm. be in therapy, which means right. like there's not, there's not anything you can do. You can't point out to them what they're doing. The best thing to do mm-hmm. is just step away. Right. You know, you mentioned a gender thing. And I and I just as a, as a comical sort of aside, I'm not really conscious of functioning as a gender based animal in the workplace, except for sometimes. Sometimes I'm really aware of it. And at one point I had a meeting. This is back when I did have an actual office. And um, I was meeting. This woman had requested a meeting with me to explain something. She was upset uh, about something or she was wanting to try to uh, get a headline changed. And, um, I, you know, you have a inter windows in mirrors, reflective surfaces, and I'm amused because I see her out at her computer on like, un like, like, you know, like messing with her blouse, like somehow, like, I, like I was like, why is she unbuttoning the blouse? Right. Like it was buttoned up here, like where the throat is untaking the button down and I go, well, maybe she's going to lunch. Maybe it's hot out in there. I have an office. I don't know. And then she comes into my office. And I say, uh, okay, so I'm the person she has a meeting with. And there's this whole kind of like college drama thing that happens as she's talking to me. She drops her pen, bends down, you know, then makes a big dramatic show of covering the space in the blouse. And as she bends down, she looks up at me from where she's dropped her pen continuing what she's saying and the whole time i'm like angry about this right i'm just looking at her in the eyes and i just like had to break that fourth wall and step out of the drama and i said listen you know um what's happening now i understand might work with some people here but it it it, it doesn't 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 work with me and she goes well you don't know what it's like to be a former sex worker in a work <laughs> This is just about the headline that I don't like. I'm not qualified to be a therapist here. You're probably not the only sex worker who works in this office. So please, let's just change the headline to one that works. Well, and you know. Button the button and left my office. And I was like, my God, you know, I hate to think if she'd gone into anybody else's office, 
for whom that would have actually worked, you know, it was well, but, a strange moment. But it's interesting because one of the things I was thinking about is something I remember years ago. I mean, this is many years ago. You and I were meeting at a work thing where you had brought me in to, to work and we were having lunch and I was having lunch and I spilled something on my blouse. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't. And I looked down. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have. Look, I have sauce on myself. I remember the story. I remember this. And you said, you know what? I have been trained to never look at any woman below the collarbone. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> but you know what? I thought to myself, I thought, what What a drag. Like, that just must be so oppressive. I mean, we've known each other for years. Like, you, I'm, not, I'm working with you. I'm not working. And, and But to think that you have had to, in the workplace, develop that kind of discipline and that I, I really did. I thought it must be difficult. And I think also, I feel like what I want to say here, too, is that there is a very specific dynamic that white women do, okay? right. which is, is talked about, I have seen white women will cry. And yeah, their, yeah, yeah. Their, their form of DARVO is white women's tears, right? So, and this happens yeah. particularly if a black woman and a white woman have a conflict and the white woman is 100% to blame, she will turn on the waterworks and yeah. all of the white guys who are also socialized to come and rescue crying white women will come in. Mm. And so there's a mm. lot of ways in which gender and race and different dynamics play into right. who gets to who gets to be a victim and who isn't. Right. And there are a lot of people right. who really enjoy being a victim. Like they will, yeah. they will play off of that, which, you know, is I think another thing we need to watch out for. Well, ultimately the punchline is she went over my head uh, and it found somebody who it worked with and got the headline changed, <laughs> which I refused to work with her after that. I was like, no, she, could you edit my, nah, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm too wow. Busy. Hey, yeah, listen, yeah. so do you have a fire me? I do. I do. And it's, uh, um, yeah, it, I, I feel, I, yeah, I feel, listen, listen, what is that thing? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And my, my head has been on fire. Uh, I think it, it hit late last night or early this morning. And it is in this continuing battle between, um, between Jack Dorsey, the former CEO and founder of Twitter, now Blue Sky, and Elon Musk. Now, listen, you know, Elon Musk fills a category in my Substack. I wrote about the magical Donald Trump. This is very definitely a character that uh, along the lines of Tony Montana uh, from Scarface, who famously said, even when I lie, I tell the truth. Even when Musk lies, he's telling you he is uh, indubitably him at any given moment, whoever that person may be. But to read Dorsey now in this Twitter battle of words with with Musk to say it was a mistake to sell Twitter to Musk. Musk made a lot of mistakes, doesn't really know what he's doing. He's all these things are fundamentally true, but it is really hard to hear that from a guy who gallivanted off with two billion dollars and is sitting somewhere else. You know, I mean, these were all avoidable errors. He's like, well, we're a publicly traded company. What could we do? The board made a decision. Maybe it was a hasty decision. Bro, you had something to do with 
all of this. You know, you could have forestalled all of this. I used to be married to an attorney, and one of her bet noirs was Carl Icahn, who was uh, constantly trying to get in these companies, get, you know, buy enough shares so that he could subvert the company. And her job specifically was to design poison pills, so that was impossible to have happen. The fact that you didn't do this with Twitter, your due diligence, you know, it. <laughs> it, it's something sort of Obama-esque about it. And I'm a big Obama fan previously, but for Obama to be doing shows like he decided to do a podcast with Bruce Springsteen where we could talk about how great it is to be to be multimillionaires. I'm glad things have worked out for you, man, but the rest of us are still on a battlefield. A little help would be nice. So Dorsey going, it was a big it was it was it's terrible what he's doing. Thanks. That's that's great. Thanks. I'm being attacked online by white supremacists. But thank you. I'm glad you feel Mr. Two Billion Dollar Man feel bad about it. So I think that as as I think this is a major failing as a, as the leader, as a CEO. And um, and, uh, you know, if I worked at Blue Sky, I might have serious long term questions. If I was planning on making Blue Sky you know, a career choice, a long lived career choice. I'm, I, I might think twice because what is that Goldman Sachs thing? The guy, uh, Goldman, a guy who worked at Goldman Sachs, he said, either you're stupid, you think I'm stupid <laughs> or, or, or you you are crazy or you are, there was, there was a, a, a couple of breakdown, but we could just stop with the first two. And so it's just really, it's really, irked me it's really in that instance i'm sure his throwing shade at musk that we're all supposed to kind of go yeah musk musk but in this instance i'm not blaming musk i'm blaming i'm blaming dorsey for this it's, especially and, and, because and, it it's not like he can plead ignorance it's not like exactly. oh my god shock shock elon musk isn't is the you know fill in the blank we all knew right, who and, he and, was and, yeah, right and it's not like it's not like it's not like this oh it's just social media so nobody was hurt People have actually been hurt, actually been hurt. Let's talk to the woman who was eight months pregnant, gave birth, and was about to start her maternity leave, and all that washed in the water. They haven't paid any severance. They haven't taken care of any. There's no cobra. There's nothing. Let's talk to her about the $100,000 of debt that she's now sporting. So it's like there, there were there were very definitely people who trusted you. It's like it's a, the line from on the waterfront, you know, uh, remember that night down in my locker room? You know, you and my brother, you should have watched out for me a little bit. And that's what Dorsey stopped it. Just stop it. I can't. It physically made me sick. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. On that note, um, that's all we've got uh, for today. Keep an eye out if you're in the Seattle area. Uh, we are doing Bad Boss Brief Live uh, Wednesday, June 7th up in Capitol Hill. You can find more and get free tickets on Eventbrite. Um, you might want to get a ticket because I actually think people are going to show up. And so we want to make sure that you have and, and to show it to show you my heart's in the right place. You get yourself a ticket. I will wrestle you. <laughs> no, no, you will not. I'm there kidding. will be no I'm wrestling. Kidding. I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, go. Uh, oh, I forgot. Send us emails. Uh, send us emails about show suggestions, ideas, and you can also send us emails asking for advice. We might answer it here, but we have a new segment that's called Sub Rosa. Um, it's free for now, but we're going to eventually put it behind a paywall on Substack, and we uh, take your questions and answer them directly, the two of us, back behind a paywall where it's quiet and your boss won't be listening. So yep. WTF yep. at badbossbrief.com. Reach out and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Ah, adios. 
Thank you for listening to the Bad Boss Brief with your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. You can check out more of their work by visiting consigliera.substack.com for Stephanie and Eugene S. Robinson.substack.com for Eugene. You can also find Eugene at Mr. Sleep 3, that's the number 3, on Instagram. Send us your questions or comments to WTF at badbossbrief.com and be sure to join us right here on your favorite podcast platform for more insights every other week. Until next time, don't be an asshole at work. Thank <laughs> you.